book in the Old Testament. We're, we're almost done with the Old Testament. I had to look it up when we actually started. It was like 12 years ago. Uh, and so it's taken us 12 years to get through uh, the Old Testament. Yeah, and, and now we're getting close, very close to the end here, okay? Uh, we only have um, four more books to go through. The first two books that we're going to go through is Zephaniah and Haggai. They're three chapters, two chapters, and then we get a little bit longer book uh, there in Zechariah. And then the last book in the Old Testament is going to be uh, the book of uh, Malachi. And I, I was, you know, I always like to go around and make sure I shake everyone's hands or, or you know, give people a hug. And, and some of you guys are very, very sweaty. I, I can tell you that right now. And I'm so glad you're here in an air-conditioned uh, building. You're saving on your, you know, corriente or your electricity, you know. And, um, you know, you don't have to pay for your electricity at home right now because you're here in an air-conditioned place, you can cool yourself down before you go uh, outside and have to do whatever you do. The good thing is, of course, you know, when you leave this building, it's actually, you know, light still outside, you know, which is, which is good. It seems like you still have more time to do things. We're in the book of, of Zephaniah tonight. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Zephaniah. It's one of those books that um, most people have never read in their entire lives. If you have, it's just to put a check box in a, you know, year plan or something like that. And most of the time we read through it, it's very, very quick, just three chapters that we're going through. But Zephaniah is one of those important books in the Old Testament because it's the last of the pre-exilic prophets. And what that means is, is he's the last to speak to the Israelites before they go into bondage in uh, Babylon. The, the next three books, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, they're what are called the post-exilic books. They're when the people come back to uh, the land of Jerusalem after 70 years in bondage in Babylon. But Zephaniah is the last of the pre-exilic, the, the ones before they actually go into uh, bondage. And because of that, Zephaniah is important because he's pointing out there, there's still a chance for you to repent. That there, There's still an option for you to come back to uh, the Lord. And at the very end of the book of Zephaniah, and whenever I go through the book of Zephaniah, I always want to read the ending of it because the ending is so beautiful. The first two chapters are hard, okay? Uh, when we go through the first two chapters, it's going to be very, very convicting. It's going to be very, very... Uh, disciplinary. It's going to be very, very, you know, hard on, you know, every single one of us. But it ends in a beautiful way. And this is the point with everything that God does. That whenever he disciplines, whenever he uh, brings about judgment upon whether it's a people or a church or a person, it's always to bring them to a better place. It's always to help them to grow. It's always to edify uh, them. And so in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, we read this. After all the hard things, he says to them, he says, Sing for joy, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O Israel. Be glad and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Yahweh has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, Yahweh, 
is in your midst. You will fear evil no more. And in that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. Yahweh your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will be joyful over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with joyful singing. So, Father, tonight as we approach this amazing, uh, amazing book, to realize that it's not us that are singing over you. It's you that are singing over us. And you have such a, a more melodic voice than any of us here. You have such a, a, an amazing voice compared to anyone on the planet. And, and just to be able to listen to our God personally, intimately, sing over like a lullaby, like a mom or a grandma or a dad or Someone who loves us so dearly and just wants to comfort us in our time of need. And so, Lord, help us to treasure that tonight. Maybe it's the first time we've ever heard that phrase. Maybe it's the first time we've ever heard that, that you actually want to sing over us in that amazing melodic voice that you have. So, Lord, help us treasure this book tonight. Help us to really treasure what it says. To understand it as a, a complete book. This small book in the, toward the end of the Old Testament, Lord. And Lord, I, I ask that you give us wisdom tonight. I ask that you uh, just help us to maybe even understand this for the first time. To apply it to our lives, Lord. I thank you for each and every single one that's here tonight. And those that are watching online, I ask you. Bless them in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Zephaniah, it's one of those books that starts off with a genealogy. I don't know if you, you're into genealogies or not. When we start Matthew, the first chapter in the book of the, or the New Testament, it's going to be a big, long genealogy. And when we get to the book of Luke, there's going to be another big, long uh, genealogy. This is a, a short genealogy. In fact, it's the longest genealogy of any of the prophets, okay? And there's a reason why Zephaniah gives a, a breakdown of his genealogy going back five generations, okay? I don't know how many generations you know back, okay? But, but normally it's, you know, uh, father or mother, and then maybe, you know, your sets of, of grandparents, right? If you're lucky, you know, your great grandparents, but, but the genealogy that Zephaniah is giving here is extremely important. In verse one, it says the word of Yahweh, which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah in the days of Josiah, a son of Ammon, king of uh, Judah. Zephaniah's name, just like all the other names that we've been looking at in terms of the minor prophets, has an amazing uh, definition. His uh, name means treasured uh, by God or, or treasured by Yahweh. Th this writing, these three chapters that he's giving, to the people of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, 
at this time is a, a treasure to them. Just like the whole Bible, we should treasure it, right? But Zephaniah's name means treasured by Yahweh. The other thing that we pick out from this is he can trace his lineage back to Hezekiah. And that's important because Hezekiah was one of the good kings, okay? Hezekiah was the one that caused revival to take place in uh, Jerusalem. He's the fifth generation down that can trace his lineage back to Hezekiah. So what does that mean for Zephaniah? That means he's a related to the king. He's a cousin of the king of Jerusalem at this time. If there had just been one person that had died, Zephaniah could have possibly been king. Can you imagine that? Just, you know, one of the, the great grandfathers, uh, if they had died, that he, his line would have then become king. That, that he's off by just a couple of, you know, degrees from being the king of Israel. Instead, uh, what is he doing now? He's a prophet. Do you, do you understand that, you know, we can be so, you know, mad at God at times. Oh, oh God, if you just cause this to happen for me, or, or if this had just happened in my life, my life would have gone a different direction. Zephaniah could have complained all he wanted to, right? It, it, I, if I were king, right, I would do things differently. And, and even to know the king himself as a relative. But, but do you understand that for each and every single one of us, including Zephaniah, God has a perfect plan to use you where you are right now. To, to use you, despite the decisions that you made in your life, despite, you know, all the, the mistakes that we've made, all the sins that we have made, that he still has a plan, even in the place where you are now. And Zephaniah, he is now a, a prophet to the last of the generations that are going to be taken to Babylon, the pre-exilic nation of Jerusalem. Continuing on there in verse 2, it says, I will completely end all things from the face of the ground, declares Yahweh, now setting the theme for the next two chapters. And thank God there's a good part, and uh, you know, hopefully you'll, you'll keep that in your mind. There, there's a good part coming. There's a good part coming. There's a good part coming. Because the first two chapters, he's going to rip them a good one. He, he, he's going to just rip right into them because of all the problems that they have caused. You can see there the generation, the son of Amon. Uh, Amon was the worst king in the history of the nation of Judah in the capital city of Jerusalem. He, he was just absolutely horrific. And then his son, Josiah, comes on the throne at a very young age, and he causes a revival to take place. Thank God for that. But in his old age, he dies by an arrow to the chest through an Egyptian archer at the very end of his life. And within two generations later, within four kings that take place over a very, very brief period of less than a decade, Israel is taken into bondage in Babylon. And Zephaniah is one of the last of the prophets 
to be able to warn them. I will end man and beast. I will end the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, the ruins along with the wicked, and I will cut off man from the face of the ground, declares Yahweh, God's coming to clean house. Have you ever, you know, I'm, and we normally don't think of it this way, but, but when I sin, when, when we sin, who it affects? Normally we don't, you know, contemplate the, you know, the, the consequences of our sin. We just sin to sin most of the time, right? But what happens when we sin? Who is affected? It's not just me. It, it's not even just those around me at times, you know. But even the earth itself is affected. What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? Was it just them that had to bear the consequences of their sin? No. The earth had to bear the consequences. There, were, there was a curse that was placed upon uh, the earth itself. Death entered into the earth for the very first time. The same thing here. The consequences of sin, the devastation of war, the devastation of what's going to take place when Babylon comes in and destroys uh, the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Judea, the, the southern kingdom of Judea everything's going to be affected because of it. Not, not just people, but even nature itself. Verse 4, So I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests and those who worship on the housetops, the hosts of heaven, and those who worship and swear to Yahweh, and yet swear by Milcom, and those who have turned back from following Yahweh, and those who have not sought Yahweh or inquired of him. You see what's happening here. There's a, a conglomeration of religions that have kind of been uh, intermeshed with one another. They, they, they swear to Yahweh on the Sabbath, and then on another day they swear to this God by the name of Milcom. They, they swear to Baal. They swear to the Bashtras. They, they swear to the various gods that they serve. It just depends upon, you know, their mood. It just depends upon the time. It just depends upon the day. It's this conglomeration of all these different religions. They can be very, very religious, and yet at the same time, very, very wrong. God is coming to clean house. It's so easy to do. You know, you can come to church on a Sunday and, you know, raise your hands and praise God and, you know, live like hell the rest of the week, right? Go about and do whatever you want to do. People do it all the time, by the way. I know none of you do. But people do it all the time. That, that's why, you know, people, you know, go to confession or they go to, you know, someone that they can tell their sins to, right? You know, and they, they get absolved of their sins. They do their little penance. They, they do their whatever it is, a tithe or, you know, a rosary or whatever it may be. And then you can go back and, you know, sin again the next Saturday, right? For, you know, us that don't go to a, a Catholic church or there's no priest, we can do exactly the same thing, by the way. We, we, we know there are certain places that we shouldn't go to because we know what will happen when we go there. 
It's so easy to be stuck in a, a sin habit. And it's the same thing with the Israelites. In fact, this God by the name of Milcom is the God of the Amorites, the Ammonites, uh, which were the, the, the cousins of, you know, Israel. Uh, they, they were descended from Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham. Remember him, right? Lot was the guy that came out of Sodom and Gomorrah, and his wife got turned into a pillar of salt, and so his, his daughters got him drunk and, you know, laid with him, and he had sons and grandsons exactly at the same exact time from his daughters, right? And these were the Ammonites. These were the Moabites, and the Israelites had adopted their gods, and then, of course, the Baals, they were the gods of the Canaanites. These were the ones that lived in the land before the Israelites came in there after uh, the land of Egypt. You see this conglomeration, this, this compiling of all these uh, gods. And we can look back at them and say, oh, they're just a bunch of, you know, um, people that, you know, don't understand what it means to serve the Lord. And yet we can do exactly the same thing, right? We have our set compartmentalized gods that we serve very, very easily. In verse 7, it tells us how to overcome that. It says, be silent before Lord Yahweh. For the day of Yahweh is near, for Yahweh is prepared to sacrifice. He has set apart his guests. And it will be on that day of Yahweh's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's son, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. What, what, what's the cure for religion? It's sitting silently before the one who is God, who is real. It's having an intimate relationship with God, right? And you've all heard the phrase, you know, it's not, a, it's not a religion. Christianity isn't just a religion. It's a, you know, a relationship with the God who loves us. And th th this is how we overcome that. It, it's by having that intimacy with God rather than you know as we've heard over and over again our shopping list before God rather than you know talking to him and and all of our wants and needs and all those things that that we just bring to God and then we just leave yes God wants to hear us thank God that he does but he wants us to listen to him too he wants us to hear his voice and this is what he he wanted for the people of that day not only are they mixing religions, but they're mixing how they, you know, treat others. They're, they're dressing like other people. They're, they're doing it in such a way where they're adopting not only the religion, but the, what it looks like to be a, you know, a foreigner. In fact, the kings and the queens and the, the princes and all these people in leadership, they're dressing like the foreign nations. Look what it says. In verse 9, and I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. What, what are they doing when they come to the temple? Je Jesus talked about this very, very clearly. They loved to fleece the flock. You, they, would, they would come with their, you know, uh, their lamb or their sacrifice, their, their pigeon, their turtle dove, whatever it is that they would bring to as the sacrifice. And, and the priest that was there, they would say, oh, that's not worthy. You have to buy ours. 
And of course, they would charge, you know, three times, five times, ten times as much. And what would they do? They would fleece the flock. They would purposely steal from those that were coming with, you know, and, and you know, genuine heart, wanting to serve the Lord, but yet were being prevented by the priests themselves because of their own uh, greed. Look at what it says there, leap on the temple threshold. D do you understand what they're mean? They're, they're jumping around. They're, they're doing their song and their dance. You see it on TV sometimes with certain, you know, Christian shows, unfortunately, right? But it's it, exactly what they're doing here. And, and yet they're deceiving and bringing about, uh, you know, a, a coming about of deceit amongst the very people of God. They're accepting bribes. They're trying to gain from their position. Verse 10, and it will be in that day, declares Yahweh, that there will be a sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, and great destruction from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silent. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. It will be at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the people who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, Yahweh will not do good or evil. The gates of Jerusalem, and you can even go to Jerusalem today, and there, there's, you know, uh, not original gates, but there's, there's gates there, even today, that have specific names. There was the, the dung gate, and there's the fish gate, and there's the mortar gate. There's the various gates that are, are surrounding Jerusalem, and they were named on purpose. What, what do you think went through the fish gate? Fish, yeah. That, that's where seafood would come through, all the clean things that were, were seafood. The mortar gate was for anything that was a, a building material. A dung gate was for anything that was a waste product, you know, that was going out of, of Jerusalem. You had the eastern gate. You had the gate, beautiful. You had all these various uh, gates that were named in uh, Jerusalem. But look at how it describes the people that are going in and out of those gates. They are stagnant. They're complacent. Have you ever, you know, been to a, a maybe a on a hike or something like that, and you come to a, a pool of water, and it, you know you're hoping, oh man, I'm so thirsty, and then you get there, and there's a whole bunch of mosquitoes. And algae floating on top, right? It's a stagnant piece of water. Why is it stagnant? There's no movement, right? There, there's no stream coming in and taking out the, you know, the the waste products and are making sure that the running water, their living water, if you will. Instead, it's dead water. And what happens with dead water? parasites and and all these diseases can easily form in this stagnant water god is comparing the people of jerusalem to stagnant water you're you're not refreshing you're not you know living you're dead you're complacent in your sins and it's so easy to do by the way 
to just be a, you know, pew warmer, seat warmer. It's easy to judge the person up here if you're sitting out there. Very easily, by the way. Until you actually have to come up here and do it. Any of you that have ever had to, you know, maybe fill in or give a Bible study or whatever, and and thank God I've, you know, normally teach on on Monday nights, but I've had the privilege to to allow other men uh, to preach or teach on on Monday uh, nights, and and it, it changes your perspective of the person up there, right? Because you have to actually prepare and you have to answer the questions, and you know, and it's very difficult. Extremely difficult. It's easy to judge when we're not the ones that are uh, teaching. But it's the stagnant water that's spiritually dead. By the way, what's the only way to make stagnant water alive again? You have to have a, a source, right? A, a source of living water, a well or or some sort of spring, right? Right? That's why in Psalms 23, it, it, it talks about when the good shepherd takes the lambs or the flock, where does he take them to? Springs of water. Not, not you know, dead water. Not diseased water. Not parasitic water, right? He takes them to springs. And same thing with Jesus. Jesus always describes himself as, as living water, right? Water that is refreshing and builds you up, gives you life, right? But this last phrase in verse 12, it says, Yahweh will not do good or evil. That's the epitome of complacency. That's the epitome of a stagnant pool. That's the epitome of what it means to treat religion as just this thing that I have to intend because of tradition. It's what I've always done. When I get there, there's no consequences. God doesn't do evil or good. He's just there, right? And spun up the world and then just let it go. It's so easy to have that mindset when we come to church. I, I'm just going there because, you know, someone else told me to, or, you know, I need to be seen by the pastor, or I need to be seen by someone. That's why, you know, so many people just come for certain events, Easter and Sunday or Easter and Christmas, right? Thank God that, you know, you guys come on a Wednesday night, right? You, you, you don't care, you know, the pastor is not here, right? So he doesn't see you. But, but you're here because you want to be seen by someone else, by God himself, right? And that's the privilege that we have. Verse 13, it continues on, it will be their wealth will become spoiled, their houses desolate. Indeed, they will build houses, but not inhabit them and plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. This is what complacency does. You get lazy. You're continually doing nothing. And then what happens to your life? It becomes stagnant. It becomes death. And what happens? And you know the houses in your neighborhood where the people don't do anything to them, right? That's exactly what it looks like. Exactly here. It's a desolate place on the outside. Everything's crumbling down. Stagnant or complacency always kills. 
It always kills. Another illustration is what happens if you just sit on your rear end all the time? What eventually happens to your arteries in your body? You all know this. This is why, you know, we're always told to exercise, right? Why? What happens to your body? If you're stagnant, if you're complacent, if you just, you know, sit down all the time. Yeah, exactly. It kills, right? All those, you know, bad numbers come up in your body, right? And you don't want to go to see the doctor, right? Continues on there in verse 14. Near is the great day of Yahweh. Near and coming very quickly. Oh, sound the day of Yahweh. In it, the mighty man cries out bitterly. A day of fury is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and thick darkness, a day of clouds and dense gloom, a day of trumpet and loud shouting against the fortified cities and the high corner uh, towers. This word day is repeated over and over and over again, it is coming soon. Repent, turn. But unfortunately, what we see is, you know, in history that they did not. In fact, it gets worse there in verses 17 and 18. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against Yahweh and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. By the way, that's the PG version. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver him on the day of the fury of Yahweh, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. Do you really understand what that means? They're going to be so scared, right? They're going to be soiling their pants, okay? Yes. It's a better way of saying it. But but can you imagine, I mean, just the smell itself. And by the way, if you read the book of Lamentation, if you read the book of Jeremiah, you see exactly what happened behind the walls. You can even go back and, and listen. I, mean, I think we were there like a year and a half, probably two years ago. We were in the book of, of Jeremiah and Lamentations, and you see what happened behind the walls, and it was horrific, horrific, horrific. That this doesn't even do that justice. That this this is just the highlight. What what happened behind the wall just really rips your heart every time you read a book like Lamentation or a book like uh, Jeremiah. Verse eighteen. This is what they tried to do. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. All their wealth will mean nothing in that day. They won't be able to buy their way out of the troubles. They won't be able to buy their way out of the punishment. They won't be able to buy their way out of the problem. All their accumulation of wealth will mean nothing when this day occurs and the day of the fury of Yahweh and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete destruction, indeed a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth they will not be able to buy their way out of God's wrath that is coming. But, but by the way, you know, you understand why Jesus Christ came to this earth and died for us. We, we all understand that, right? It's the reason why we can be a, a Christian. Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life, fulfilled all prophecy, and died for our what? 
sins. We all understand that, okay? But there's something else that he saved us from as well. And, and it's um, to a degree even more important than just saving us from our sins. Yes, it is important. Bible repeats over and over again that Jesus Christ saves us from our sins 100%. But there's an amazing verse. I love this. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. And, and it describes both things that Jesus Christ's death saved us from. The first one we see in verse 8. The second one we see in verse 9. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank God for that, right? Thank God 100% Christ died for our sins. He died for sinners. He didn't die for holy people because there's none of those on the earth, okay? He didn't die for healthy people. He, he died for those that are sick, that are in their trespasses, in their sins, that need a Savior. But in verse 9, it, it, there's a second component to this, okay? Jesus died for our sins, but what else? Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. There's a second component to that. Not only does he save us from our sins, but he saves us from the wrath of God. Eternal punishment forever and ever. And this, this applies to uh, Zephaniah where the wrath of God is coming down upon Jerusalem. And what is God giving them opportunity after opportunity, chance after chance to repent and come to him and he would save them from his wrath. He would deliver them. It, it wasn't his plan that they would go into bondage. It wasn't his plan that Babylon would come. It was because of their sins and the consequences of their sins that this is happening. Jesus Christ saves us from our sins. He saves us from the wrath of God. When we truly begin to understand that, what that really means, I mean, we, we should just fall on our face before the Lord. We should just be so grateful. We would never take the, the cross in vain ever. Then he's on there in Zephaniah chapter 2. Remember, Zephaniah's name means treasured by Yahweh. He's a cousin of the king, okay? This is very important when we get to chapter 2 here. A gather yourselves together. Indeed, gather, O nation, without shame, before the decree takes effect. The day passes like the chaff, before the burning anger of Yahweh comes upon you, before the day of Yahweh's anger comes upon you. Seek Yahweh, all you humble of the earth, who have worked his right or his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility perhaps you will be hidden in the day yahweh's anger what 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 is god wanting the people to do now this this is anathema you know in a lot of religious circles right this is not what normal you know religious circles tell you to do this isn't about tithe. This isn't about money. This isn't about certain things that you have to do, right? Yeah, there's this regimen of religious exercises that you have to go through 
in order to appease the wrath of God. What, what, what does Zephaniah say two times in this verse? Be humble before me. Be humble before God. Just come humbly before me. Acknowledge me as God, and everything else will come into play. Everything else will come into place. Because when I, when I take the time, as we read earlier, to listen to God, to sit silently before him, wanting to you know, obey him, wanting to love him, wanting to put him first, humbly coming before him, acknowledging that I do not have the answers, God does, and not me. God, God's will is before my will. When I humbly come before him, when I acknowledge who he is, that he's in control, that he's sovereign, as we sang earlier tonight, I realize that there's only one who can save. And it's, God's, or it's God himself. Verse 4, it continues on, verses 4 through 7 are actually one paragraph. I'll just read those all together. These are actually every single one of these cities that we're going to be reading here. They're, they're Philistine capitals. You guys remember the Philistines? The Philistines were, you know, the, the guy from Goliath. You know, Goliath was one of the Philistines. They were always a thorn in the side of Israel. For Gaza will be taken. This, this, by the way, is the same place where it is even today called the Gaza Strip. You, you've heard that probably many, many times on the news. The, the Gaza area, this would be where the Philistines uh, would have been for Gaza will be forsaken. Ashkelon, a desolation. Ashdod will be driven out at noon. And Ekron will be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nations of the Cherethites. The word of Yahweh is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will make you perish so that there will be no inhabitant. So the seacoast will be pastures with caves for shepherds and folds for flocks, and the coast will be the remnant of the house of Judah. They will feed upon it in the houses of Ashkelon. They will lie down at evening for Yahweh their God will care for them and restore their uh, fortune. What, what is it saying here? That when they come back to the land, that they're going to inhabit this area, this area where the Philistines were. But by the way, if, you know, when we were going through the book of Ezekiel, we see that you know, at the end of the book of Ezekiel during the millennial kingdom, the, the Israelites will actually inhabit for the very first time, by the way, the entire land of Israel, including this coastal uh, region. Verses 8 through 11, it says, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon, with which they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their territories. Therefore, as I live, declares Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah. And we all know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? These are the descendants of Lot. In fact, even today, you can go to a, a country to the east of Israel called Ammon, right? This is where uh, we have, you know, Mount Nebo, which is where Moses saw the promised land. Uh, you can go there and, and see the wilderness wanderings and various other uh, holy sites. But Ammon and Moab, what's going to happen to those countries? It describes it here, God's going to bring about a destruction to this place, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits, 
and a perpetual desolation. The remnant of my people will plunder them and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. This they will have in return for their what? For their pride. Which, by the way, is the opposite of humility. Right? You see this contrast. What happens when you have pride? God's going to bring you down. What happens when you have humility? God's going to exalt you. The, the first shall be last. The last shall be first. Right? As Jesus says it in the, the New Testament. Because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh will be fearsome to them, for he will starve all the gods of the earth. And all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own uh, place. So he deals with the Philistines. He deals with the Moabites and the Ammonites. He doesn't stop there. In verse 12, he goes south. This is the, the northern African region there. In verse 12, you also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword. He will stretch out his hand against the north and cause Syria, Assyria uh, to perish and will make Nineveh a desolation. Parched like the wilderness, flocks will lie down in her midst. All the beasts of the nations, both the pelican and the hedgehog, will lodge in the tops of her pillars and their voice will sing in the window. Ruin will be on the threshold for he has laid bare the cedar work. This is the exultant city whose inhabitants securely who says in her heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. What does it mean to have pride in my own works? What does it mean to have pride in, 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 you know, in terms of making myself higher than God? Because this is exactly what the people were doing. What happens when we exalt ourselves? There's only one who is exalted, by the way. Only one. And it's God himself. God is going to bring about this desolation that's going to take place for 70 years. Look at what it says. This is the exultant city. This is the last verse of chapter 2, which inhabits securely, who says in her heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. What are they saying about themselves? They're using that phrase, I am. They're saying, I'm God. I'm the one that, you know, caused all this stuff that I have to be accumulated for myself. I, I look about my wealth and all the things that I haven't. I did it, right? And what does Jesus say about the person that says that? What does Jesus say about the person that says that? You look at all the things that you have, you want to build more, and God comes to you and says, your life is taken from you tomorrow you're going to die right jerusalem is going to be desolate for 70 years for 70 years the land is going to be desolate until the people come back and and when we get to the book of haggai that's what's called the the post-exilic time period when they come back god's going to cause them to rebuild the land ezra nehemiah Haggai and Zechariah, all these prophets are going to come and they're going to say, rebuild, rebuild the temple, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, rebuild the walls. God's going to cause a revival to take place. Chapter 3, Zephaniah. 
Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressive city. She did not listen to any voice. She did not receive discipline. She did not trust in Yahweh. She did not draw near to her God. Her princes and her myths are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves. At evening they leave nothing to gnaw for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. By the way, that's the opposite of what a, a, a priest or a religious leader or even a political leader is supposed to do. God, God is in this satirical voice saying, this is not what you guys should be doing, right? You're profaning the altar of God. You're profaning the sanctuary. Rather than treating it as holy, my house is holy, what are you doing to it? Yeah, causing it to be done for reckless, treacherous, pro profaning of violence, as it says there. Verse 5, Yahweh is righteous in her midst. He will do no injustice every morning. He brings his justice to light. He does not fail, for the unjust knows no shame. There's this amazing verse in, in Hebrews chapter 12. It's this paragraph, and I, I, I love this section in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is actually written to religious people, okay? It's one of those big theological books, and it's written to uh, people that believe in God, but they don't believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, okay? They're, they're religious. They have all this religiosity, but they don't apply it to their lives, okay? They just go to the the, the you know, Sabbath services. They go to the, the temple, and they do their thing, and then they go about and you know, spend the rest of the week. In Hebrews chapter 12, right, right after the chapter of faith, by the way, chapter of faith is, is Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 8, it says this, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as son. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint, when you're reproved by it. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he flogs every son whom he receives. Well, what does God do with the sins in our lives, with, with the bad habits that we have? Thank God he accepts us. We don't have to change our lives before we come to Christ. Thank God for that, right? None of us here would ever become a Christian, okay? None of, none of us here would ever, you know, have any chance of going to heaven if we had, you know, somehow make our lives right before we came to God. But when, when we do come to God, when we become a child of God, when we, we become a child of the King, there, there's, a, a, you know, a, a period of sanctification, right? We talked about this on Sunday, that time between when we're justified and we're glorified, and it's a refining period in our lives. It's a time where God weeds out those things that are hindering us in our walk with him. As it says earlier in the chapter, lay aside those things that hinder you or that weigh you down. Run the race, right? And so it's those things that God weeds out. Look at what it says in the rest of those verses there. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there 
whom his father does not discipline. Why does a good father discipline his children? Why does a good parent discipline their children? Why? Just to be mean? No, because he loves them. Because God loves us. And he doesn't want us to stay in our depravity and our stagnation and our complacency in our sins. He wants us to get better, right? And so he refines us. The, the, the last verse, verse 8, really puts it into a new perspective. We understand, you know, verses 5 through 7, God, God disciplines us because he loves us. But look at what it says there in verse 8. And this is scary, by the way. This is super scary, okay? But if you are without discipline, okay, ask yourself, is God disciplining me or is he not disciplining me? Am I actually getting away with my sins? There, there's no consequences for my sins. God, God's not disciplining me because I'm sinning. This is a scary place to be in because what does it say in verse 8? Of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You're just putting on a facade. You're a hypocrite. You may not even be a Christian. That's a scary thing to ask. But we all have to ask ourselves that question. Because if I'm truly a child of God, what will he do with my life? He'll refine us. He'll discipline us. Because he loves us. We all have to ask ourselves that question. Am I allowing the Lord to discipline my life? Thank God that he does, by the way, that he takes the time to discipline. That he gives us the Holy Spirit as that, you know, comforter to come into our lives and examine us. And every single time we take communion, or every single time we maybe in our prayer and we confess our sins to the Lord, right? That there's this weeding out of our sins. And it's not all at once, you know. The Lord is patient with us. Thank God for that. But But are you growing? Are you maturing as we learned on? Uh, Sunday in the book of First uh, uh, Peter, verse six of the last chapter here of of Zephaniah, uh, Zephaniah three six. It says, "I have cut off nation; their corner towers are desolate. I have made their streets a west waste, with no one passing by. Their cities are a laid waste, without a man, without an inhabitant." I said, "Surely you will fear me. Receive discipline." Exactly what we were talking about from the book of Hebrews. So her abode will not be cut off according to all that have appointed concerning her, but they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. They didn't want to listen to God. And so what are the consequences? Babylon's going to come in and take them to a land where they don't want to go. They're going to have to listen to a language that they don't understand. Their temple's going to be destroyed, and they're going to live in a foreign country for 70 years. And when they come back, they're going to be eager for the word of God. They're going to be eager for the temple. In fact, it's going to be one of the first things they rebuild. Verse 8, thank God for Yahweh's patience. Thank God for God's patience with us. Therefore, wait for me, declares Yahweh, for a day will rise up as a witness. Indeed, my judgment is to assemble nations, to gather kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation all my burning anger for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. For then I will change them to peoples with purified lips. 
that all of them may call on the name of Yahweh to serve him shoulder to shoulder. What is the purpose of discipline, refining, and God's anger and wrath? What is the purpose? To refine his people, to make them purify, to bring them to the place where they need God. I, I don't know if you've ever purified a needle or, or, or purified something that you have to, you know, make sure you kill all the germs off of, right? Uh, wh why, when you go into surgery, they have to open up a, a whole new set of instruments? Why? What, what, what happens if even one germ or, or one bad thing is introduced into a, wo a wound? Right? It can easily get infected. Right? That, that's the same thing. That's why Isaiah, when he goes before the very throne of God, there's, there's this coal that is put on his lips. Because he said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a, a person of unclean lips among the people of unclean lips. Right? We all need to be purified. But what does that bring about? Unification in the church. Unification in the body of Christ. In fact, what does it say? To serve him shoulder to shoulder? Well, we unified, right? We all have a common goal. We have a common desire. Verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my scattered ones, will bring my offerings. In that day, they will feel no shame because of all their deeds by which you have transgressed against me. And for then I will remove from your midst your proud, exulting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. God's going to bring back his people. He will always have a remnant. But it's a refined remnant. It's a remnant that now has been weeded out of those that have been proud. But I will cause to remain in your midst a, low, a lowly and poor people, and they will take refuge in the name of Yahweh. The remnant of Israel will do no injustice. They will not speak falsehood nor will a deceitful tongue uh, be found in their mouths, and they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble, and you're reminded of the Beatitudes. In fact, the very first sermon that Jesus speaks, that, that big long section in the book of Matthew called the Beatitudes there on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, where, where Jesus would speak, to all those people on that hill, what's the first thing that comes out of his mouth? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can find this in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied exactly amplifying what Zephaniah says there at the end of the very last part of Israel's history before they go into Babylon. You're a bunch of proud people. You need to be meek. You need to be mild. You need to be humble. By, by the way, you know the definition of meek, right? It's not weak, okay? That definition of, of meek is, is power under control. Right? Relying upon the one who is all-powerful, right? The same thing with humbleness. Re understanding who's actually in control. 
understanding who is the one that we serve. It continues on there in Matthew chapter 5, just the last three verses. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Just absolutely beautiful. Last couple paragraph here at the very end, and we've already read this at the beginning uh, of Zephaniah here, but at the end and this these same verses, and hopefully now it's this you know refreshing section that we see. Sing for joy, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O Israel. Be glad and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Yahweh has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies, the king of Israel. Yahweh is in your midst. You will fear evil no more. And that day will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, O, o Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. Yahweh, your God, is in your midst. A mighty one to save. He will be joyful over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with joyful singing. And isn't that a beautiful picture? It's that, that mom that, that holds her children, sings to them. And God has a much more beautiful voice. It's, it's intimacy, right? It's that lulling to sleep of the child. In Psalms chapter 126, I, I love this chapter. When Yahweh returned the captives, ones of Zion, we were like those who dream that our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, Yahweh has done great things for them. Yahweh has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Yahweh, as the streams in the Negev those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who goes to and fro, weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, carrying his sheaves with them. Now, by the way, that's an old hymn. Bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, we will go rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. I, I don't know if you understand the full meaning of this. This is agricultural. You know, when you have to work, when you have to till the soil, when you have to plant and, and weed and all those things, it, it's hard work. But then when you're done, when there's actually a crop to bring in, what happens? Your, your countenance changes. You're happy. Why? Because you got food. We don't understand that fully today because we have supermarkets, right? But, but in agricultural society, when you're bringing in all that abundant harvest because of your hard work, what does it mean? You know, and of course, everybody worked. Everybody worked. You know, there, there was, you know, the younger kids, they were, they were helping in the fields. The, the, the older ones were bringing in, you know, cooking and, and all the things that they did for the workers. And of course, the workers that were, you know, bringing in all this produce. And then they all shared together in the abundance and there was party and rejoicing because the Lord blessed our harvest. Three more verses, three more minutes, three more verses. Ending here in Zephaniah, I will assemble those who grieve about the appointed feast. They were from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I'm going to deal at that time with all those who afflict you. 
and I will save the lame and gather the banished. I will turn them in their shame into praise and a name in all the earth. Are you lame right now? Are you feeling rejected? Are you, are you feel like you're, you know, not accepted? I'm here to tell you that God wants you. I'm here to tell you that God is seeking for you. That God wants you. He wants you to come to him. It's a beautiful ending to a very difficult book. He wants you to come to him and he'll remove your shame. He'll take away those, those things from your past that haunt you day and night. And he removes it. He gives you his righteousness. He takes your sins and he gives you his son's righteousness, that great exchange. But even more beautiful, verse 20. At that time, I will bring you in. Even at the time when I gather you together, indeed, I will be, or I will give you to be a name and praise among all the people of the earth, and I will restore your fortunes before your eyes. Exactly what we sang earlier today. Does God have a greater prosperity for you than the one that you're pursuing in your own strength? Does God have something better for you in his will that goes beyond our biggest dreams? Thank God for that. That's why I always, I love I loved to pray on Monday nights and also on Wednesday nights that God multiplies your time. Because you're, you're coming, I mean, this is a, a sacrifice, right? Coming on a Wednesday night. Coming throughout the week. I mean, you could just be like most people and come on second service on Sunday or come, you know, for the big events or come just for Christmas or Easter or whatever it is. Just, just when the, the church is packed, right? Or, or when there's a, a big, you know, thing going on. And not to knock those things, no. But, but God wants to multiply your time. He, he blesses you for being here. He blesses you for watching. He blesses you for wanting to invest in the kingdom of God. By the way, God signs his name at the end of Zephaniah. It's that salutation. It's that signature, the name of Yahweh. That's why I love the, the, the Legacy Standard Bible. You actually see the name of, of God, Yahweh, in this, you know, uh, version. And, and he signs his name as a promise at the end of Zephaniah. Says Yahweh, promises Yahweh. He signs his name to the letter. We don't, we don't have those nowadays, you know, with texts and emails and all those kind of things. But God takes the time to sign his name. Isn't that amazing? I love it. Next week, we'll be in the book of Haggai. It's only two chapters. Very, very quick. We'll probably finish Haggai and start Zechariah next week. Uh, so please come and, and please read ahead, if you will. Dear Father, I thank you so much. And thank you for... Um, <clears throat> And thank you for preserving my throat until um, the very end, Lord. I thank you for that. 
I thank you for these, my friends, my family that are gathered here that, that not only have come, but also desire to know you personally, desire to know you. And if there's anyone in this room or even anyone online that may be watching it now or in the future, Lord, that don't know you personally, that that offer is available now, that offer is available in the future, and that offer is is available over and over and over again. You, you do not give up on us, thank God for that. Just as you did not give up on your people Israel, even in their bondage, you did not give up on them. You still kept your promises. You signed your name, as we read here. You're calling humble people to come to you. And so, Lord, tonight, if there's anyone here, I ask that they just come forward. I ask that they just come and talk to me or or one of the pastors, Lord, and just just uh, um, tell us, talk to us. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you so much for your saving grace that we all need, that you come to us first, that you seek us out, that you desire us, that you bring about a change in our lives that is, that is true, a, a change in our lives that, that is for our good, Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you that you sing over us. We thank you that you're there for us. We praise you for who you are tonight. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.